So, Tim, um, now I want to take you back to, uh, well, I want to take you back to where I was in August 2016. A happier, more innocent time. Yeah. Yeah. And I was out for a walk in Manchester and I was listening to your article in the um, in the Guardian, uh, which was called uh, name escapes me. It was the history of revolt or the dark rise of. Yeah, like the dark history of Trumpism or something along those lines. That's right. Yeah, I'll put a link up to it. And now, what was interesting about that time, I was listening to your article and I was like going, oh, wow, these guys, they're going to do it. They're going to elect this guy. They're going to. And there was something about your article that made me think that um, I got a sense that it was possible. You know, I knew abstractly like that, um, you know, in a two horse race and given the elector- American electoral system, college system that he's Donald Trump has got a chance. But what was interesting to me about your article was that you were saying that there was a long intellectual history of ideas uh, behind Trumpism, behind Trump and Trumpism, right? So um, I'm wondering, um, maybe you could extrapolate, use that as our starting point, maybe you could extrapolate a little, extrapolate a little bit on that and uh, maybe just explain what you saw as the the specific type of conservatism, the, the lineage of it that led up to... Uh, no, no problem. Trump. And I have to say, if you if you saw in that article evidence that Trump was going to be able to pull it off, then you were a step, step ahead of me. Because when I was writing it, I saw something that I thought was just like... I thought I was explaining why someone like Trump would be able to win the Republican nomination and why someone like Trump might be able to become president one day. But I did not think that day would be um, January 20th, 2017. I thought that this election was kind of in the bag and that because of Trump's own flaws, in a way, the impetus for the article came out of my conviction that Trump, while he had certain personal characteristics that made him appealing to large numbers of voters, like the celebrity, the charisma, all that stuff, that actually the message of Trumpism was more powerful than the messenger of Trump. And that Trumpism was the thing that people on my side of the political aisle had to worry about for the foreseeable future. And that, you know, I'm a historian by training. Um, I'm a historian by practice today, too. It was something that I thought that historians hadn't done a good job. Academics certainly hadn't done a good job of wrapping their heads around. And and so that was my mindset when I was um, working on the piece, which should note. So you listened to it in August uh, 2016. I think maybe the day or the day after it came out was the same day that Steve Bannon came on board the Trump campaign. It was a, it was a weird connection in time. But to your original question about sort of the genealogy of Trumpism, which is what the piece was um, dedicated to uncovering, I want to point out just I think one reason why the piece was, it was a challenge of the piece was trying to separate Trump himself from this ideology that I argued that he'd sort of stumbled into promoting. And that of course, now that he's in the white house, like has largely fallen by the wayside. It's just given way to all sorts of different competing factors. But the argument in the piece was that if you looked at uh, Trump 
circa 2015, like the day before he announces that he's running for president um, as a Republican. He's actually not that popular among Republicans. He's like he has a hardcore fan base, to be sure. But the party as a whole isn't um, behind him. That changes really quickly, though. After he announces, I think it changes because of what he was saying. He was giving voice to sentiments that a large number of people in the United States had been feeling and that just they hadn't found a proper vehicle for yet. And that if you were to reduce Trumpism to sort of three key policy principles, it would be economic nationalism, hence the sort of opposition to immigration and the opposition to free trade. It would be uh, sort of not isolationism is a little bit simplistic, but a sort of like unapologetic America first approach to foreign policy. And it would be a sort of identitarian America, like quasi sometimes like explicitly white nationalists, sometimes sort of like sub Rosa white nationalist um, identity politics. So these were sort of core principles of Trumpism. And the argument in the piece was that in a sense that Trump was giving voice to sentiments that had been a sort of a populist, a right wing populist revolt that had been building for almost a century at this point. And that in order to understand the rise of Trumpism, you would understand first the rise and then ultimately sort of the turbulent um, process and ultimate failings of the sort of technocratic managerial elite that he'd been rebelling against. So that in a sense, we often put populism and technocracy in different boxes. There are parts of different histories. My argument was that they've been feeding off of each other for more than a century now. And that at this point in history, because of the failures of the American elite on a host of issues, they'd become more vulnerable to the sort of populist rebellion that Trump represented than at any time in their history. Right. So um, that's that's really interesting. Um so you, you, so it's the case that I guess what you're arguing is that Trump is an avatar of longstanding economic and sort of political grievances. So if not Trump, the man, then Trumpism is, you know, a useful conduit for the things that you mentioned, economic nationalism, uh, I don't know, more of a sort of a rigorous mm-hmm. control of borders. And uh, uh, I guess a more, as you say, American first foreign policy um is i mean i think what struck me about your article was that it 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 he, he, he beca- as an avatar for these trends he 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 kind of drove a wedge into mm-hmm. i guess traditional mm-hmm. american conservatism between i guess you know the david frums of the world the the establishment professional technocratic uh, moderate republicans and uh, a more dissenting uh, type of conservatism would it, is that is that uh, uh, an, absolutely an and, and sort of the broader uh, history that I would give for this and one reason why I found the subject so fascinating to explore in addition to the obvious uh, contemporary relevance was that the history that led to Donald Trump was not the history of American conservatism that I was familiar with as a scholar. Like in graduate school, you learn a story about Amer- the history of the, Amer- of the modern American right that goes something like William F. Buckley and a collection of other conservative intellectuals around National Review in the 1950s. They bring together or they provide the intellectual foundations for a conservative movement that then wins a major early major victory in 1964 when Barry Goldwater is nominated uh, by the Republican Party as president of the United States. And even though Goldwater goes down to a uh, like landslide defeat in 1964 against Lyndon Johnson, that he sort of he legitimizes a place for these conservative ideas in the Republican Party and that 
ultimately when Ronald Reagan uh, runs and wins uh, for the White House uh, 16 years later in 1980, that this conservative movement that had begun with Buckley found its first major political representative in Goldwater was ushered into the White House under Reagan. And that this created a transformed conservative movement that and a transformed Republican Party that meant that when George W. Bush was running for president in 2000, he said, you know, I'm a lot more like Ronald Reagan than I am like my dad. And that forced um, previous mod people, you know, someone like George, like Mitt Romney, whose father had been a quintessential sort of moderate Republican in 1968 to also cast himself as conservative. And it's a history that led to figures like Ted Cruz, to Paul Ryan. It really explained that sort of the making of a ideological Republican Party, a Republican Party dedicated to the promotion of movement conservatism. That was the story that I had learned. And it's a genealogy that moves, you know, from, as I said, like Barry Goldwater, Ronald Reagan, Paul Ryan, Ted Cruz. You know, that was a story that made sense to me. When you look at the road that leads to Donald Trump, though, it points to a different history. And it's one that's connected to the movement conservative story at several key points, but that diverges at others. And it starts not with the sort of like intellectual revolt that then among sort of highfalutin thinkers like Bill Buckley, but rather begins with Joe McCarthy. It begins with this populist revolt against the New mm. Deal, where you these people who feel they've been like left out of this emerging, they, they're neither part of the new liberal coastal elite, nor are they part of sort of the one favorite line among thinkers of this ilk is that there's a conspiracy of the top and the bottom against the middle. And that if you're part of this sort of vast tract of what's often derisively referred to as fly of our country, middle America, that you don't have a place in this new system. And one of the earliest vehicles for this, um, is for this uh, dissatisfaction is Joe McCarthy, who it's easy to forget now, but for a brief period in the late forties and early 1950s was the most popular politician in America. Um, that's one reason why the Red Scare was able to exert such a terrible influence over people is that Joe McCarthy was legitimately quite, quite popular. And like Dwight Eisenhower was afraid of tangling with him. And that instead of seeing the development of the right as history of this, um, intellectual and ideological movement, you see it as a vehicle for this inchoate populist rebellion that sometimes that sort of scrambles conventional categories. So Joe McCarthy is the first representative. Um, Goldwater sort of piggybacks on those key themes um, and the opposition to civil rights, um, at least sort of civil rights legislation is a key part of his success in 64. But really, uh, George Wallace is the better representative of this movement, sort of someone who's campaigning against elites of both parties, um, speaking to forgotten Americans, and does, it's often forgotten now, but does surprisingly well when he's running for president in 1672 in both northern and southern primaries. So you have a movement where the story becomes essentially Republicans like Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan succeed when they are able to channel this inchoate populist rebellion, but they never end up delivering on the policy for it. And it's only when you have sort of the Pat Buchanan's run for the presidency in 1992 and 1996 that you see what a sort of like a fully fleshed out conservative populism would look like. And to the extent that uh, Buchanan's campaign is, uh, if, if it's anything, is crucially a forerunner for what Trump himself, it's sort of a test drive for what Trump would be doing in 2016. The only difference being that Buchanan was running, especially in 96, during a time of general economic prosperity and before things like the presidency of Barack Obama, the increasing uh, racial diversification of the country and a host of other factors had made Trump a lot more, a candidacy like Trump's, a lot more viable than it had been 20 years earlier. So, I mean, this is, that that dissenting, that's that dissenting uh, sort of, alternate lineage of conservatism. I, I'm wondering, is that something, do you think that's something specific to 
American conservatism. I mean, looking at it from the outside, um, and I, I think we've seen some of it yeah. over in the United Kingdom in the Brexit referendum, but um, is there something distinctly about American conservatism that manages to sort of comfortably synthesize, um, well, conservatism and sort of rebellion, revolt, uh, you know, overturning the liberal status quo, overturning sort of technocratic cosmopolitanism. Yeah, I think that what would be distinctive about the American case is less this sort of right-wing populist rebellion, which you see um, across, like, you know, this has been one of the major stories of geopolitics in the last year or so, but more the success of that movement conservatism in the first place, right? That we would have, the United States would have a Republican Party that's opposed to basic institutions of the welfare state, most obviously universal health care, that right-wing parties in Europe had accommodated themselves to decades ago. And that one way to read Trumpism is a, as a kind of, it's bringing the American right into like a broader global norm of right wing policy, right wing politics that has acceded to the left on questions of the welfare state in order to focus better on this sort of like different cluster of resentments and had broken away from the sort of like doctrinaire free market conservatism that in the United States had been able to enjoy sort of an unusual degree of popularity and unusual hold over the Republican Party. And it's in that strange marriage right now that we're seeing like all the fraud dynamics that are playing out while Republicans are actually trying to govern between representatives of this sort of older movement conservative mentality, most obviously Paul Ryan, who's mostly concerned with getting tax cuts through for corporations. You know, that is his chief purpose in life. And Donald Trump, who doesn't seem to have, you know, who will say that he wants a tax cut for the middle class, will say that he wants health healthcare reform that benefits everyone, but doesn't seem to have sort of the policy tension to follow any of this through. And in practice, mostly seems concerned with whether or not black people are kneeling during the national anthem. Right, right. Okay. Um, now, um, in, ter in terms of your, uh, mm -hmm. in terms of that article, and in terms of the development or the, the genealogy of this 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 these ideas that drive that 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 drive towards trumpism um the figure of uh, james burnham comes up and uh james burnham you know this this sort of um writes about the managerial revolution he writes about managerialism and i'm wondering maybe what is the extent of the role burnham plays for you in this development of these yeah, so ideas Bur yeah so sorry please, please continue how, no yeah Oh yeah, no, sorry. Just how how is Burnham an intellectual? Right, so what Burnham does, and so Burnham, he's uh, as you mentioned, he's a mid-century American intellectual, born I think in the 1910s, maybe the 1920s. Um, his major work uh, uh comes out. It's called the Manchu Revolution. Was happening in the world comes out in the 1940s. Becomes a sort of surprise bestseller. Um, and the thesis of the book is that essentially. Marxists were right about the development of global history up until the 20th century, that they were right that first you had this sort of like bourgeois revolution that had overthrown an aristocratic order in the 19th century, but that bourgeois capitalism had given way around the turn of the 20th century to a new order where it was dominated not by economic life was dominated, not by the people who technically owned the means of production, not by capitalists, but by managers, that it was the people who were running the institutions rather than the ones who nominally owned them that had real power in society. And that this was a trend that you could see not just in the United States, but across 
across the world, and that the managerial elite had essentially become a new ruling class. This was an important moment in Burnham's development because before this point, he had been best known. He was one a member of this group that's like now often retrospectively described as like the New York intellectuals. He was a New York intellectual in good standing, quite left wing, actually for uh, not inconsiderable, inconsiderable period of time, one of uh, Trotsky's chief lieutenants in the United States. He had been radicalized by the Great Depression during the 1930s, found his way into Trotsky's orbit, but um, by the end of the 1930s, that was falling out. And man- the major revolution was his attempt to explain his break breaking apart with uh, Trotskyism and with Marxism more generally. And it was precisely over this point uh, where he was saying, yes, that story about capitalism is really crucial. But what Marxists missed, according to Burnham, was the importance of this managerial elite. Now, this is also a moment why. So the question is, why would this once popular book that's now been forgotten by a former Trotskyist have anything to do with Donald Trump? And the answer is that Burnham's break from Marxism is the beginning of a rightward turn that will eventually lead him to become one of the founding editors of National Review. Um, he's, yeah, it is. It's, it's driven fast. chiefly by, I think, the Cold War, by hostility toward the Soviet Union. He just becomes more and more convinced that this is, he calls it the Third World War. It's defining moral conflict of our time. He never really buys into sort of broader conservative, the broader conservative ideological project. He's much less enamored of free markets and of that sort of like case for liberty than many conservative intellectuals are. But he's intensely hostile to the Soviet Union and convinced that sort of the American liberal elite isn't going to wage the Cold War with the vigor that deserves. And he's much more skeptical of that liberal elite precisely because he sees them as representatives of this managerial class that refuses to acknowledge that it is itself a ruling class and needs to be contained. That in a sense, Burnham combination of aversion communism, the sort of lingering hostility to the managerial elite, and a legitimate sense, in his case, that that power of that elite needs to be checked in order to preserve spaces for liberty. Um, That becomes a very important uh, part in his philosophy. All that leads him to uh, move right. And it's especially important because Buckley... Among his many talents, he was a very he was a brilliant publicist. He was a charismatic reformer. He had a real knack for picking up quasi father figures. Burnham was just old enough that he could serve in that role for Buckley. He provided sort of intellectual legitimacy for the conservative project. Someone who was an important counselor to Buckley in the early years of National Review and actually like through the 1960s. And why all this story about the managerial elite matters um, is that one through Burnham, it has an important place in the history, intellectual history of conservatism, but especially because after Burnham, you know, within the broader sort of history of National Review, he gets sort of marginalized because he doesn't buy into the ideological project wholeheartedly. But one person who does really um, latch onto Burnham's uh, arguments and who essentially devotes his political and intellectual career developing them is a figure now who's was forgotten when I was working on this piece, but is better remembered now, called Samuel Francis. Uh, Sam Francis, who I agree the piece with a lot of evidence, is essentially the intellectual father of the alt-right, and who uses Burnham's analysis of the managerial class as the basis of his, of his worldview. And the key contribution that Francis will make to Burnham's argument is that for Burnham, the managerial elite, that was a fact that just had to be taken for granted. You could try and restrain them, but they were in power. There was nothing you could do to fight back. What Burnham added... Sorry, what Francis added was an emphasis on the weakness of this managerial elite. He said that they were a lot more vulnerable to attack than Burnham had realized, and that the way they would be challenged was precisely through these sort of inchoate right-wing populist rebellions of the type that first Joe McCarthy, then George Wallace 
had uh, spoken for. Um, Francis, he had different terms for the group that would provide the support for this rebellion. Sometimes he called them middle American radicals. Sometimes he called them sort of like a post-bourgeois rebellion. Whatever the case, um, these uh, conservative sort of temperamentally, but not ideologically conservative voters, he argued could provide the foundation for a political revolt against the managerial class that could uh, become electorally viable in a way that old school movement conservatism like never really would be. That's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, uh, so Sam Francis, who comes through Burnham, I mean, he is this, I would, I mean, what you've outlined there sounds to me sort of fascism 101. I mean, He's, 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 he's chastising the, and correct me if I'm wrong, he's chastising the, um, the technocratic class or the managerial class for being weak, effeminate, um, lacking vigor. No, and this is, uh, in Francis's work, it's really striking. One thing I didn't talk about in the piece, but if I were ever expanding it, one thing you draw attention to is that when Francis describes the type of representative, the type of political figure, that will be attracted to this sort of like middle American rebellion. It's someone who fits the characteristics of both Trump and the people that Trump seems to prefer to have around him. So sort of like a brash, impetuous, militaristic um, appeals, appeals to patriotism, sort of like tapping into this sort of like wellspring of cultural resentments and this like longing for sort of like, you know, a daddy authority figure to come in and tell people how things are going to be. Sure. I don't know if I would go all the way on the fascism comparison, just because it seems like that's just, mm-hmm. it, it's a, it, ta- it takes up a whole host of like other connotations. Um, it's just something that it's, it's potentially true, potentially not. I think you could channel it. It's, it's definitely a liberal, I'd say. I don't know if I'd go as far as fascist, but, um, huh. it pushes huh. against, um, definitely pushes against many of sort of like the prized virtues of like, contemporary meritocratic liberalism yeah in the book uh or sorry in your article uh if i recall you say his francis's book is um leviathan and its enemies which is sort of a classical conservative reference there but he's you call it uh one of the most impressive books to come out of the american right in a generation yeah, I, I, I stand by that too. Um, and partly it's a bit of a slap at what the American, the sort of intellectual wing of the American right has been producing over the last generation that sort of not since Francis Fukuyama's The End of History has, I think, sort of like a work that like really deserves wrestling with, um, come out of that tradition. You know, even there are, you know, very, very smart writers on the American right, you know, like I read from and like learn from even while disagreeing with, uh, figures like Ramesh Panuru or David Fromm or Ross Douthat. It's just that, you know, the books haven't really followed through on sort of any of the promise that you might see in their sort of day-to-day commentary. And Francis was partly because he wasn't sucked into that mill of sort of constantly like receive what, you know, he was not a public intellectual in the sort of prestigious sense of the term. Like he would write for these like marginal outlets he was deeply racist and like once that was uncovered in the middle of the 90s was persona non grata within sort of the mainstream wing of the conservative movement. He's sort of like cut off um, in this own space. He's like why he matters for American politics more generally is because he becomes quite close with Pat Buchanan, is a counselor in, when Buchanan is running for president in 92 and 96 and really helps provide sort of the intellectual framework for Buchanan's revolt, which, again, sort of 
contributed to sort of provided an early model for what Trumpism would become. But Francis, it's a it's a serious book, Leviathan and Leviathan and its enemies. I think I also say in the piece it's like rambling, it's repetitive, but it has. Yeah, desperately needed editor. But it has a powerful argument that identified a weakness in it really that in and this was a book that it was only published in 2015 or 2016 i think but francis had written it in the 90s he, he dies in i think 2004 and it was discovered um posthumously like among his papers and just sort of the prescience with which it outlines the sort of character of what we now know as his trumpet's revolt and the sort of seriousness with which it describes sort of the weaknesses of the establishment that it would set out to attack, I think definitely merits it as, you could call it sort of like uh, Das Kapital for Trumpism. And it's far from, far, far, far from a perfect book, but one that I think definitely deserves wrestling with by people on my side of the political aisle. Well, that is it. I mean, Das Kapital for Trumpism. Now that's, that's a book we have to read. Uh, um, I mean, sort of slightly going back to Burnham and though, and I guess again, uh, uh, Samuel Francis, I, mean, I think the one thing that struck me about all of this in terms of the American election and its aftermath and some of the consequences that, we, that have ensued, that the things that Burnham and sort of, uh, and later on Francis are lamenting are a lot of the issues that mm-hmm. Trump was tapping into. So uh, I guess uh, things like um, you mentioned, like things like, well, population growth, uh, rampant corporatism, uh Difficult for small businesses to take hold, uh, overly powerful governments. Um, but I mean, Burnham, for example, Burnham is kind of a, a strange synthesis of Marxism, mm-hmm, Trotskyism, mm-hmm. and conservatism. And you look at the 2016 election, you have two types of populism. Would it be fair to say between sort of yeah. uh, a progressive populism with Bernie Sanders and a, uh, I guess, can we say a regressive yes. populism with uh, Donald Trump? Absolutely. And this was, it's something that okay. was a, it's a hobby horse of my own as a historian and something that definitely attracted me to the subject is that just as I was saying earlier that we often like put populism and technocracy and sort of technic- the populism and the technocrats into different histories and don't try and bring them together. We also, it, it becomes really easy when we write about politics to just say that there's this conservative story that's moving along one side and there's this liberal story that's moving on another side and then maybe there's this like socialist or radical story that's moving along off in its own corner and when you see figures like burnham like francis and like trump like sanders themselves where it happens so much that i almost don't want to say they're exceptions to the rule but they're the rule themselves that these supposedly rigid ideological containers prove to be a lot more porous than we let ourselves think and that the story of like ideas that have the capacity to like migrate against our static ideological categories and to like throw them out altogether reveals the political history that's just a lot more surprising than we let ourselves believe if we just want to tell a story about conservative Republicans and liberal Democrats. Sure. And now uh, another sort of dimension that I'd like to talk to you about um, following on from that is especially given sort of uh, Francis's, Samuel Francis's um, Mm -hmm. sort of racial prejudice is, um, and that's the emergence of uh, white economic nationalism. So uh, um, this is, I guess, it's difficult to say, it's a type of Mm -hmm. identity politics, I guess. Um, I'm wondering, is Trump someone who 
well he clearly did he clearly um uh, he he clearly played into the anxieties of uh, sort of the white working class i think in order to uh, gain political capital um um uh, so what i'm wondering really is why is it now at this particular moment is there this attempt to reassert white economic nationalism especially in the light of events like uh yeah. charlottesville um why is you know the synthesis of uh nationalism and white race yeah i think that there are emerging. a few different key factors uh behind this process um a lot, some of them are go back decades and some of them are more recent. More recent. First, like underlying everything is the stagnation of at incomes for the vast majority of Americans since the 1970s. That if you are the typical American worker, you effectively haven't gotten a raise in a generation. And the benefits of economic growth, like there has been economic growth, but the fact that those benefits have gone overwhelmingly to the 1% um, contributes to a feeling that the game is rigged and that you can't hope on rising living standards in the way that your parents could. So that's one long-term factor. All that sort of economic anxiety is heightened by sort of the protracted and disappointing recovery from the Great Recession of 2008-2009. So that gives sort of like an extra emphasis to trends that had been building for decades. Marry that with the sort of rising racial anxieties over a country that's becoming increasingly diverse. Um, if demographic estimates are right, then somewhere around, I think, 2040, the United States will be a country that's mostly non-white uh, for the first time in the history of the United States. Uh, and sort of cultural resentment that's bred by having sort of a new cosmopolitan elite represented by figures like the Obamas that sort of have this sort of like effortless grace and access to power that this sort of white working class mm. that feels itself you know they're being these people who feel like they're being told that like they're the oppressors or you know like lectured by chris rock while watching the oscars about structural racism in an example that's often cited uh but themselves don't feel like they have any sort of real standing in life and certainly that feel again it goes back to this line of a conspiracy the top and the bottom against the middle that these are people who to tell themselves that they've been working hard and playing by the rules and are getting screwed in this larger contest. And that really, it gets to sort of a key element in Burnham's thought and Francis's thought, and actually in Trump's as well, which is against the notion that politics and economics, it's not a zero sum game, that there are ways that a rising tide can lift all votes, that a government run well can benefit everyone in the country, that this is a movement that's more concerned with power and distribution of resources. And it's convinced like, no, there are going to be winners and losers. Um, Life's a bitch, as, as Trump would put it. I, th I think Trump actually did this was something like in The Apprentice or something like life's a bitch. Um, you have to and you either win or you lose. There are winners and losers. And the point is that you want to be on the winning side. And that argument gains a lot of appeal when people feel like they've been on the losing side for generations and especially over the last few years. And it's been easy since the election. There have been constant arguments about sort of is was Trump's support the result of economic anxiety or racial anxiety again it's as if it's a choice between either or and practice like those two like they melt together in all sorts of different complicated ways but it's at the sort of intersection of those trends you know it's no accident that you have a presidential candidate who plays to white nationalism more aggressively than any major presidential candidate in a generation in the aftermath of our first black president right so that you have Race politics becomes racialized in a way that right. it was before Obama, but those long-standing economic concerns are also like very much a factor. 
I mean, and Obama then must have been an absolute yeah. lightning rod for this. Uh, I mean, he's 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 Ivy League educated. He's he's you know he has a post-racial uh, political mandate, a big political mandate. Yeah, he embodies everything that this and movement is targeted against. And it's no coincidence that Sam Francis, in one of the last columns he publishes in his life, devotes it to Barack Obama. He's like he sees Obama as a challenge to like everything that he stands for, and. One reason why I was skeptical that Trump actually would be able to pull off a win in 2016 is that, like, you know, Obama had done really well for himself, like, four years earlier, and especially, yeah. like, eight years earlier. And that what's striking about Francis's argument is that compared to the sort of the clarity of Burnham, who said that, you know, the people, the ruling class, the people who run the show are the people who have, like, power, that ultimately political power follows from the sort of, like, economic managerial control. And it was unclear to me why these the sort of these middle American radicals that Francis said could provide the um, components of this populist upheaval, you know, they were the losers of this argument. Like what was going to give them sort of like long term political sustainability? And I think one from my perspective, the optimistic case for the case for optimism in politics now rests on the fact that in a sense that this sort of like Sam Francis type of political rebellion, this Trumpist rebellion could only become really viable when people felt like they were just on the edge of losing altogether. And that it's as the country is becoming more diverse that like this sort of white nationalist politics gains a sort of credibility that didn't have when whiteness could be taken as a sort of like the unquestioned foundation of American politics. And. Oh, yeah, I, I, I did have a similar instinct, although I, I mean, I'd be more interested to see what you think about it again as an outsider, that it was that I did sort of inchoately feel after that uh, election that that I saw it as sort of the last gasp of a type of American conservatism. I don't know if that's true. Yeah, well, it's just a question of think. what we saw in this last election among uh, working class whites is essentially that they just voted in, essentially working class whites voting and turnout as if they were sort of like another sort of minority group with like a hypercharged um, partisan affiliation. Like we don't bat an eyelash when we see African-Americans voting like 90 percent for Democrats. Question is, like, what happens if white voters in state of numbers start doing that? That sort of that racialization of American party politics would be something like there would be something new, at least for like the recent history of um, American political debate. And we don't know what would happen um, if that's the case. I would say that given Trump's massive unpopularity with younger voters, that this doesn't seem likely and sort of a failed presidency can do a lot to delegitimize a cause. Certainly George W. Bush, um, the disasters of his time in office uh, set back his like compassionate conservatives of compassionate conservative approach. But, and so there's a case to be made that sort of and to use the old cliche that Trump, like Trump is stands for Trumpism. Like it's a movement. They're like the dog that caught the car. You know, they, they don't know what to do next, but huh. it could also be the case that politics has just become so much like a vehicle for the expression of like resentments and anger at the other group that it becomes like easier and easier to detach it from sort of real outcomes in the world. And that, while Democrats will certainly win an election again, that's just the nature of a two-party system. All that ju it ju means just as clearly that if the Republican Party survives, that they'll win power again eventually too. The pendulum will swing back the other way. And if Trump has managed to retain a hold in office, that the sort of like next generation mutation of this movement will be there too. I see. I see. Um, um, now, I think that's a perfect way to segue to the, I guess, what I 
dimly understand as the uh, mm-hmm. what I call the postmodern right, postmodern conservatism, and and by that I mean the alt right. And you talk in your that article about yeah. Milo Yiannopoulos and his his role in the development of the alt right. Now, what strikes me about that is, 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 is the seem that seems to be in sort of the arc of American conservatism that seems to be a quite sort of a contradictory movement because uh, on the one hand they do still they they they're they're repudiating the Republican establishment yet at the same time um, they uh, they uh, they don't really want to be part of the conservative mainstream they don't want to be part of mm. power even I think mm-hmm. yet. Yet Steve Bannon was their guy. He was, you know, he was in the White House. So I'm wondering, how, what is the role for, what is the role of the alt right in the development of American conservatism? Is it something that will solidify, or is it something that? Will yeah, it's confusing because they're sort of the alt right narrow, like as it was sort of originally born, and therefore sort of narrowly construed. Mm. That sort of explicitly like white nationalist uh, Richard Spencer. Um, Sig Heil wing of the movement. Then there's like what Breitbart was doing, which is sort of like playing with that alt right. And there's sort of this moment in 2016 where alt right sort of expanded in its definition from that sort of like hardcore white nationalist element to the broader sort of like sometimes referred to as like alt light um, collection of figures who flirt with it to various degrees, but won't like refuse to like publicly identify themselves with it. So like. Steve Bannon would like kids can sometimes say like oh Breitbart is a platform for the alt right but if you push him too hard to say like no no I want this sort of like post racial vision of like American nationalism America first means all Americans that type of thing um, I'd say too that the game sort has sort of changed in the last year for a few important reasons like chief among them Trump actually winning and no longer can you say that this sort of revolt is like purely for the lulls as sort of the Milo school had it in 2015. Um, after mm-hmm. Charlottesville as well, there's sort of a sense that stakes are real in a way that they weren't before. It, but in a sense, I think that focusing on like whether or not, say, like Richard Spencer plays a continuing role in the conservative movement is a bit of a distraction. What I think really matters is how mainstream conservative, mainstream conservatives, both elected officials and Republican Party voters, what issues like move them in the sort of generations ahead. And just as I think focusing on sort of the prehistory of Trumpism allows us, reminds us of the significance of like playing to, you know, white identity politics that, you know, the notion that conservatives can win votes by pandering to racial resentment. This is not something that Donald Trump invented. He might have replaced a dog whistle with a bullhorn, but this was an element of George H.W. Bush's campaigns. It was relevant of Ronald Reagan's campaigns. It was relevant of Richard Nixon's campaigns. It had been part of the conservative playbook for a generation. But the sort of the question is whether right now we have this sort of forced marriage between the remnants of the conservative movement, establishment conservatism, this conservative movement, and this like Trumpist rebellion that doesn't quite know what to do with itself. The question is, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now, is that conservative movement still going to be there? Or is it good? Or is the Republican Party going to be taken over completely by this if not, if they, if maybe they're not calling themselves Trumpist, but the sort of like next generation, um, like right wing populist movement that has fully dispensed with this sort of like commitments to like free market conservatism and is explicitly oriented around the concerns of this sort of like white nationalist 
um, movement, even if it's not expressed with the same sort of like outrageous uh, character of uh, Richard Spencer, that in substance, they'll have won that war. And I mean, the yeah, I mean, and the thing is, I guess the big question is, I mean, now should be their time. Now should be their moment. The Republicans hold all the cards. They hold the White House, the Senate, the yep. House of Congress. They're, they're, they're in ascendancy in the Supreme Court. So all the checks and balances in power are in their in their favor. Yet, I mean, the American system is designed for gridlock as i understand it you know you've got the sort of the clature system in the in the senate and seniority and all of these things which mitigate against um mm-hmm. well people doing what they want when they receive power or it's are or, or distri- or distributing the concentration of power and it, it seems to be that it seems to be that the republic is holding up i think yeah no this uh, is uh, michael brendan doherty who is he's a writer for national review a conservative commentator someone who uh wrote a fantastic piece um years and years ago um like 2007 i think on san francis um and who i interviewed when i was um writing my own article he had i thought like a very prescient uh take on i think maybe it was like late october where he's like what if Donald Trump is just a really bad Republican president? What if he's like a mediocre, fairly standard issue Republican? And it seems like that's, that's not exactly what we've gotten, because I think even a mediocre Republican wouldn't be as concerned with Twitter and the culture war as Trump is. But that sort of we've been able to rely on incompetence to prevent either the triumph of a sort of Paul Ryan agenda and sorry, the confidence of Paul Ryan and that congressional wing of the Republican Party is another is a, actually it's pretty surprising, but has been a major factor in the last year. But it's also prevented any sort of like authoritarian type um, move from a Trumpist wing of the party either. And I'm not saying that that was necessarily something they intended, but even if they wanted to, um, they just aren't competent enough to pull that off. Now, this could the downside of all this is like that we've been America's been lucky enough. The world's been lucky enough in the last year to not face any like truly major crisis. So the cost of incompetence haven't really been fully tallied yet. Uh, what happens when there is something significant where we actually want to have someone who knows what they're doing in the White House? Question to be determined. But the upside over the last year has been that neither the sort of plutocratic Ryan agenda nor the sort of authoritarian elements of the Trump's agenda have been able to be executed. How fascinating, how fascinating. Now, uh, I guess from the outside in, I mean, uh, that 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 sort of all of that history of sort of the uh, the American right and the sort of the I guess mm-hmm. the, the subaltern American. It's a great right, way of putting as, it. Yeah. As, 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 as if, yeah, as you've uh, which is now uh, in the open um, is uh, I mean from the outside I look at sort of American conservatives or classical conservatives. I mean. You've just recently had your Thanksgiving uh, festival. Sorry, Thanksgiving. I like festival more. That sounds Um, fun. uh, (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I mean, from the outside, I look at sort of classical conservatives and they seem to be okay with all this, you know, moderate Republicans. They're they're okay. They're, they're, you know, classic conservatives. They tend to be naturally skeptical. You know, they see Trump as just one more thing. You know, the sky won't fall down. Any changes will be small and incremental and won't be revolutionary or dramatic. Whereas on the other hand, I want to talk to you about the sort of mm. the status of the American left, which seems to be in a bit of a pickle at the moment. 
the Democratic Party still has this sort of schism between the, the populist uh, sort of Sanders wing and the, I'll just call yeah. it for the sake of argument, the Clinton wing, you know, the establishment Democratic Party. And they seem to be a lot more hysterical at the moment and becoming more patriotic. You've got this sort of paranoia about yeah. the, all the Russian influence, which may or may not oh, be I think there. it's like a vastly overrated um, story, just but, personally. that That's both, I mean... At the very least, mm. it doesn't seem to me like an obvious political winner in the way that focusing on just what Republican, the terrible things the Republicans are actually doing that affect people's lives. It seems to me, you know, this, this sort of concern with Russia, um, you know, in a sense, one way you can think about it, it's like not just what's going on with Democrats, but what's going on with sort of like the Trump resistance movement more generally and a divide within that camp about whether the best strategy to take is a sort of like popular front where it just brings all Democrats together in as broad a camp as possible and any conservatives who are willing to stand up in defense of sort of American norms, traditions, and institutions. Um, that's one wing, sort of as broad a camp as possible. And the other, and this is, I think you can associate it with the sort of law of like the Clinton establishment wing of the party and this other branch of the resistance, which is less concerned with Trump himself and the violations to American norms that he may represent than with Trumpism ideology and with providing an actual alternative to both what Trump has provided, what the Republican Party's provided, and to what uh, the Democratic Party over the last generation has been up to. Something that responds to not just the election of Donald Trump, but to the discontents that put him in office in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I guess we had a similar yeah. moment with, with Brexit here. I mean, what happened with that election was, and I, your election, I guess, and what happened with the Brexit referendum here, I mean, mm -hmm. people always draw comparisons, um, is that you had a, a real sort of a crisis that emerged out of competing visions of uh, of our respective, uh, of the respective countries. Um, so, I mean, I'm wondering how, what's, wh what is the direction that you can sort of, uh, get back because i mean american politics seems i mean this is not new it's a happy yeah. thing to say it's very polarized um um what is uh, what type of a politician can emerge uh that can bring together some kind of coalition that can transcend these i uh, think these that the next generation of the democratic party will be candidates with a biography like a like barack obama's and a platform like bernie sanders's um at least sort of like among sort of like millennial voters that seems to me oh. sort of a pretty powerful combination where <laughs> Sounds like what? Explain yeah. how Caesar with <laughs> Caesar with the soul of Christ. <laughs> I don't know how Sanders or Obama would take uh, that comparison, but that um, what seems to me exhausted, at least for the moment, is that sort of like Clintonian um, politics that you saw on display, <laughs> like by Hillary Clinton herself in 2016. Um, that what one tradition of what's happening is, and there's a lot of irony here, is that. While Republicans are undergoing a crisis because they had become this sort of conservative ideological party over the last generation, and they're now like running into the limits of that. Like when Reagan conservatism is no longer viable as a doctrine, you need something new. And the sense that this that this what had once potentially been a sort of responsive politics that addressed the concerns of the day, like you know in the 1980s, had hardened over subsequent decades into this dogma that no longer corresponded to actual life and to the problems the country was facing. So while Republicans are having their like crisis over ideological politics in one on one camp, Democrats are taking an ideological turn on the other, and that they are becoming a sort of there's a prospect that they'll become a sort of legitimately like ideological left party in a way that the Republicans have been a legitimate ideological right party for decades now. 
And I think that in the short term, actually, that the sort of fracas among Democrats or like all the infighting, I don't think that terribly matters. I think that's overrated, at least as a story for the midterms, um, just because of the dynamics of American politics. If the Republican Party continues to do like a terrible job in power, then there is a pretty good chance that it'll be a wave election for Democrats and that all you need is sort of a D next to your name in order to be uh, an attractive candidate and to do well. We saw this um, in some of the elections that have been held over the last few months, these sort of uh, off year elections, which bode well for the midterms. The problem will be sort of in the short term over how the different factions like hash it out in 2020. But I'd say that if you just like look at who, which side of the party has sort of like movement energy is capable of like drawing on the enthusiasm of voters, it's clearly that Sanders wing. Those people have been doing those candidates have been doing well. Sanders himself, of course, like defied expectations for what could be expected in his movement. And to me, actually, the analogy, what Sanders most reminds me of, and I don't know what this means about his own career going forward, but in a sense that 2016, while being terrible for the country, was really, really good for his cause because he had all the benefits of you. Hillary Clinton, like one of her chief rationales in 2016, when she was running against Sanders, was electability. That like however, however much Sanders' program may appeal to you, he's going to be doomed in the election and Trump is so terrible, you need to vote for me. The combination of having a sort of discredited establishment figure, someone who can say, Sanders, he has all the luxury of being able to say, I told you so, with none of the burden that would come from actually having to govern during the situation, when I think that he would have probably been confronted with a less extreme version of what Trump is going through right now, where the sort of the candidate had won before the movement had really come behind him and before a counter-establishment had been had been sort of like erected. And now the sort of Sanders wing of the party has a chance to become more than just a Sanders wing, sort of like legitimately left detached from one personal figure. But anyway, it reminds me most closely of the experience that Ron Reagan had in, and conservatives had in 1976 when Reagan had won a very powerful, very effective uh, campaign against uh, incumbent President Gerald Ford in the Republican primaries for narrowly beat Reagan, then goes on to lose to Carter in the election in 76, which allowed conservative Republicans to say, like, haha, listen, like if we just gone with our hearts, like Worst case scenario, we would have ended up in the same, in the same place. Best case scenario, maybe would have, we would have won. And that what you see now is sort of like this rising, like left wing political movement that in contrast to, uh, predecessors in the eighties or nineties is actually deeply concerned with electoral politics, takes it seriously and understands that an American political system as narrowly divided as ours is, where as the cliche goes, um, parties are weak and partisan resentment is strong. That gives all the incentive in the world for mobilized voters to get left-wing candidates, to get behind left-wing candidates in the primaries, and then just pray or just like bet on the dynamics of American polarization to put those candidates into office. So there is hope. It's a moment where it's um, clear that, I mean, you know, maybe Cory Booker wins in 2020 and that sort of Clintonian brand of democratic politics gets uh, another burst of life. That is, it is totally plausible. But I think that in this sort of, there is more hope for the formation of a 
powerful left-wing political movement in the United States today than at any time in generations. Whether that movement will be enough to beat Republicans is an open question. And whether even if they get in power, there'll be, a, it'll be enough to actually, um, you know, put through policies that deal with the crises the country and the planet faces. It's a different set of concerns. But on that narrow issue of movement politics, I think there's a lot to be optimistic for. Good. So I got one last question for you then, uh, uh, Tim. Um, so, I mean, uh, David Axelrod, uh, one of uh, Obama's, um, I guess, uh, sort of... Strategist. Uh, like, yeah, the, 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 ideolo the ideological mind yeah. behind a lot of Obamaism, Obama politics. Yeah, he's sort of yeah, he's, he's sort of strategist and communications director, I guess. He, uh, he's got this sort of running theory that... Uh, when Americans vote in a new president, they tend to have a habit of rejecting uh, a previous president. So the election tends to be a plebiscite, obviously, on a, the existing president. And quite often, Americans will go with something yeah. that, that has the exact opposite characteristics of uh, the existing president. So, uh, so like, for example, Barack Obama would be, you know, quite a was quite a, a contradistinction yeah but an obvious corrective uh, and sort of the debate among democrats uh, in 2008 was who is the better corrective to george w bush is it hillary clinton sort of representative of mm. like that pre-bush moment in american politics or is it barack obama this by the way if um i was yeah. giving you uh nietzsche earlier then you're getting this is like david oxrod is like the hegel slash marxian dialectic of american politics too <laughs> yeah so well i mean i'm wondering i'm wondering yeah. then that's my question who is who is the uh, who is who is the Marx to Trump? Who is uh, can America? If there is if 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 uh, if Trump is the exact negation of Obama, what is the, the exact negation of Trump? And is and can can America? The, go this, I think that president? I think America could have voted a socialist for president in 2016, and that I am in the camp that there is a plausible argument that Bernie would have won, or at least could have won, if he had beat Hillary mm. for the nomination. I think that. You know, if Donald Trump could be one lesson to take from 2016 is that the boundaries of American politics are much wider than we previously understood. If people thought that American politics was a uh, sort of, you know, like to use the analogy for American football, like that's often deployed sort of a game play between 40 yard lines. It turns out, no, 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 no. The game is taking place across like much wider boundaries than we thought before, which means that the prospect of something terrible happening is higher, but it also means that the prospect of something really, really good happening is uh, higher than we'd understood as well. Um, I think that in a sense, the problem I, I find a lot that I think Axelrod's theory is right, that people do look for correctives. The problem is that it isn't as precise a predictor as one would want. Um, there are different ways in which, you know, you could say that Ted Cruz would have been just as obvious a corrective to Obama or Jeb Bush, just as obvious a corrective to Obama as Donald Trump was. And that what we'll see in 2016 is a fight over who can best present themselves as an alter as an antidote trump and i guess actually to go back to the theme of our conversation what it will turn on is like what people understand trump to be like what are they looking for a corrective to if they're looking for a corrective to someone who is this like outrageous figure who pushes against american conventions um like slanders the other side 
and just like violates is it just like chiefly objectionable because he's a norm violator that could push in the direction to sort of like a return to normalcy, just like the blandest politician that you can imagine. If he's perceived as a sort of representative of white nationalism, then a figure like Kamala Harris could become like really um, compelling for a large number of voters. Or and speaking of Harris, I'm someone like Elizabeth Warren as well. Could be attractive if he's seen as in our like Harvey Weinstein, post Harvey Weinstein moment in American politics, if he's a sort of like, avatar of like everything that's terrible about this like misogynistic culture one fascinating element of trump for those on the left is that he sort of he hits he sort of violates so many different principles that he can like bring a coalition together against him just because even if people lack sort of like a broader principle that unites Mm -hmm. them they have a common enemy in him personally my hope is that people will understand that what is worse about Trump or what most needs um, responding to in Trump isn't just that he is an ass on Twitter, but that larger vision that he stands for and that the Mm -hmm. candidate who does the best job of presenting a compelling critique of that vision should be the person who becomes the next president of the United States as quickly as possible. I could imagine that being someone like Elizabeth Warren. I could imagine it being someone like Keith Ellison. I could imagine it being a figure who's just not in anyone's radar right now, but it will certainly at least be interesting to see how this unfolds in the years ahead. (laughs) Okay. Thank you, Tim. Thank you for listening to The Well. Our theme tune is Love the Government by Papa Giraffe and is licensed under Creative Commons. You can follow us on iTunes or your preferred podcast app.